From the Harvard Negotiation and Mediation Clinical Program at Harvard Law School, I'm Sarah Delnito Budish. And I'm Neil McGarrigan. Welcome to Episode 2 of Thanks for Listening, a podcast about bridging the partisan divide in America. Since our episode one, we've all made it through a long stretch of holidays and family gatherings, which may or may not have been ample opportunities to apply some of the skills and some of the guidance that we heard um, in that first episode from Joan Blades and Mary Gaylord of Living Room Conversations. Yeah, they told us a lot of, I think, really helpful and really important things. But among them, that um, working to persuade people to change their mind frequently is um, counterproductive and not helpful, whereas sitting back and listening, genuinely listening or sitting forward and engaging with questions of curiosity and genuine interest in where somebody else is coming from actually has a much better chance of helping people engage through their differences and maybe even moving the dial a little bit on how they see the world and how they see the issues that they're disagreeing about. This is particularly difficult with family, um, we learned in that episode, and many of us know from our, from our uh, personal lives as well, but it's doable. It is doable. Um, And if it were easy to do, we wouldn't be doing this podcast at all. This podcast would not exist. Um, In fact, bridging the partisan divide wouldn't even be a thing if there weren't some kind of barriers to this in place, whether, um, you know, real or imagined. Uh, it would be very easy if as a public and as individuals, we were all in the practice and, and really a habit of having thoughtful, deliberate dialogues based on truly understanding others. Um, those are muscles that for, for many of us, we haven't grown up developing or exercising, um, or maybe we have, and we have those skills and abilities, um, and we're open to taking that approach with some people, uh, maybe those who are most like us, but not with others who are more different or with whom we disagree. Um, and when we get into that mode, we tend to be stuck in these sort of unproductive or counterproductive productive habits of shouting each other down or disengaging entirely. So what we thought would be interesting to look at for today's episode is what would happen if we all started much earlier in life trying to develop good habits, develop those skills and habits that help people engage more effectively in in conflict rather than um, waiting until the bad habits developed? What if we started earlier in life? So today we'll be talking about teenagers. What can teenagers teach us about bridging the divide um, and about the power of learning some of those productive dialogue skills at a time in life when there's so much change going on, um, including that we're still developing our identities and shaping our way of interacting with the world around us? Are young people more flexible, more willing to listen, um, and more open to different perspectives? So we spoke to some people who put this to the test, including three teenagers who themselves were part of a fascinating experiment called the Can We Project. So we're excited to get to that in just a few minutes. Before we spoke with them, though, I got a chance to interview an expert on adolescent brain development. Gretchen Brian Meisels earned her doctorate in education and is now on faculty at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I started out just by asking her what it is she finds so compelling about education and teenagers. I love everything about adolescence. Uh, I did not love being one, (laughs) but I love everything about working with them. And I think um, what it comes down to is actually quite relevant to this podcast, which is that adolescence is this unique period of time where folks have the analytic capacity to think in abstract ways about the world and to critique the ways in which the world is organized, but they haven't been so socialized by the world that they don't see some of those things anymore. So adults often become so used to the way the world is organized that they don't see the organizing structures anymore, and it's harder for them to identify or believe that it matters if they critique those structures. 
adolescents really believe um, because they have this gift of youth that um, what they do can change things in many contexts, not always, but often. And they also have this amazing ability to see the world with a fresh set of eyes in a way that provides us really important insight into what we might be doing wrong. What about I guess, teen development, is there something unique about that part of a person's life that is different from a developmental standpoint or a brain standpoint or emotional, social development standpoint? Yeah. In terms of thinking about adolescence as a unique developmental period, I think there are several things about adolescence that make it very unique. One is that we know from brain science that adolescence is a sensitive period in which the brain is growing and pruning in particularly unique ways, ways that really only are equaled by early childhood. And so because of that, adolescents are growing and thinking um, very rapidly and their brains are changing very rapidly. And it's a period of time in which the experiences they have can be particularly influential into how they think in the future. And so one thing I often notice is that because adolescents are thinking a lot about who they want to be in the world, they are particularly attuned to making observations about the ways in which other people are and the ways in which structures are set up to support or inhibit people from being their full selves. And I think that's also one reason why it's a particularly powerful moment in which to capture their perspectives. I'm curious to know what your perspective is on the sort of ability of teens to bring their perspective and the freshness of and their particular moment in um, sort of social and brain development to the idea of engaging in conflict in new ways and in ways that are constructive and valuable and um, different maybe than what many of us are used to seeing at a national level where there is acrimony and um, people retreating into separate bubbles and a real inability to see and hear each other. And what you're describing, I think, among teens is, a, is the, is the um, 180 degree opposite of that. So in terms of how young people themselves, what young people bring to the table in terms of conflict resolution, I think there are um, several really important perspective-taking skills that many young people have that I don't see as readily in adults. One thing that's really important to note that I haven't said yet is that adolescence is a time when peers become particularly important and connections and relationships to other people outside of the immediate family often increase. And I think part of the reason why young people are more open to learning from and connecting to each other is because they are hyper aware of relationships and connection as important in a way that many adults may have shrugged off by the time they're as old as we are. So um, you often see, for example, I often see young people who are willing to sit and talk to each other across life experiences, in part because just being in a room with people who have different life experiences is really interesting. And connecting with those people and learning about their life experiences is something that many adolescents haven't had a chance to do. So there's a newness about the opportunity to get outside of your own context and into someone else's context and to understand someone else's perspective that I think is interesting to adolescents in a way that it may not be interesting to adults. One piece of research from the field of social emotional learning that I think is very relevant in this context is this notion that 
in order for young people to develop social and emotional competencies that they can then draw on later in life to engage in dialogue or problem solving or conflict resolution, young people need three things. They need an opportunity to see those competencies modeled by adults. They need direct instruction about the kind of tools and skills that they can use when they need to draw on those competencies, and they need opportunities to practice those competencies. And when I talk about social-emotional competencies, I'm talking about things like the ability to recognize your own emotions and manage your emotions, or the ability to take perspectives and solve conflicts with by perspective taking, or the ability to switch your thinking about certain topics or hold multiple truths. All of those are skills we develop in childhood through adolescence that really are critical social-emotional building blocks for conflict resolution and dialogue later in life. So one thing I think is really important for educators in particular to know is that When we regulate for children and adolescents, when we tell them what to do and how to behave, and we don't give them opportunities to practice those skills, oftentimes it is very hard for them to do those things later in life in the context of the real world. Your observation about the importance of combining the the skill, the tools, the emotional, social competencies, but also the opportunity to practice those skills feeds right into what's at the heart of today's episode, which is a project called the Can We Project. A friend of ours named Deb Bicknell in Southern Maine put together um, a, a weekend involving 30 teenagers from all over Southern Maine. They came from different backgrounds and perspectives, and they were able to engage in dialogue in a facilitated setting on issues of deep public importance, but also in meaningful subjects for the teens themselves. Um, And then there was a second component to it, which was to have them articulate some policy proposals to take and present to the main gubernatorial candidates. It was all done during this past um, most recent election cycle. Um, And so there was uh, with with that set up for you, what, what is it about that particular project that you think actually is important for us or interesting for us to look at from a, a, a sort of a teen development standpoint? So in the case of Can We, all of those kinds of opportunities fit very nicely into the field of positive youth development and would suggest that those young people would then start to gather a set of skills, particularly if they were able to do this over time, that allowed them to communicate more effectively across lines of difference, to better understand their own perspectives, to be more open to other people's perspectives, and even potentially to to better understand how you change someone's perspective or you engage in an action around something with someone who has a different perspective. Right. And all of these skills that then translate into adulthood as well. Exactly. And all of these skills translate into the kinds of things we would hope adults can do in our society, but often we don't see right now, politically at least. At the same time, I think It's really critical that that project brought the young people to the gubernatorial candidates and actually allowed them to try to influence the adults. Too often, we give young people opportunities to do the first part of what that project did, to talk and to connect and to express themselves, all of which are great things to do. But when we give young people the tools to actually act on those Um, that wisdom and that learning, then I think we start to move into a zone where young people can feel more empowered and uplifted, and they can start to see the pathways through which, as adults or even as youth, they can actually change those systems. 
So, uh, Gretchen, this has really just been uh, tremendous. I really appreciate you being here today and taking the time to um, share your perspective and insight and your and your wisdom and and um, some um, some really helpful context for the show today. And uh, just was great to have you here. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. I've loved talking with you. Um, you know, Sarah, I'm so glad that we got to sit down and talk to Dr. Brian Meisels because, um, well, for one thing, the question we asked to start this off was, what would happen if you started um, teaching younger people how to en- engage constructively? And she offered some really great framing around the, the psychological development, the social development that's going on for teenagers that makes them so uniquely able to to learn those skills and to build them um, in ways that maybe is harder for adults. And then not only to build them, but to be able to retain them into adulthood so that as adults, they're better able to constructively engage in discussion and debate and dialogue around um, important political issues in in ways that when you look around today, you see adults, um, you know, not particularly, not doing a particularly good job at. Yeah. So we're going to spend the rest of our time today with folks from our community that really took these ideas to heart and tested them out. The Can We Project was the brainchild of a group of educators in Maine, and it was essentially a project that was an experiment. Can we bring together young people across political divides, you know, different political views, to come up with real policy ideas that they develop jointly about challenging political and social issues? In the segments we've captured for this podcast, you'll hear several voices. We, originally from Vietnam, is a high school senior in Portland. Kutia, who's from Burundi originally, is also a senior at a Portland high school. And Jacob was born and raised just outside Portland, where he's also in his senior year. You also hear Deb Bicknell, another Mainer, who was instrumental in designing and implementing the Kenwe Project. This is we. I actually came in the Kenwe Project, like, tr- like kind of almost fully understanding my identity. I identify as liberal. And it was very hard for me to have conversations with conservatives and, like, be okay with it. I just... um had this um, prejudice in my mind and kind of just said, oh, yeah, all conservatives are racist. All of them just want money. And that's all they were. And they were what's making America a terrible place to live. But after my experience with Kenwe, I was fortunate enough to have have to get to sit down with someone who sees um, like the economy and society in a conservative viewpoint and trying to understand that was very difficult for me. But I'm still growing, and this Kenwe Project has been a big aspect of me growing because I do now understand the importance of communication between liberals and conservatives for this nation to progress. Um, this is Kutia. Um, for me personally, I've been part of like many, many dialogues, and what really drew me to the Kenwe Project was the vast diversity of mind. Like I had never been in a dialogue where there were so many different perspectives and viewpoints, so that was really cool. And coming in, I considered myself a liberal, and by the time I left, I would consider myself more moderate because I was able to sit down and listen to people from like their point of view and like their firsthand experiences, which was really, really awesome. So... This is Jacob, by the way. Um, I was I was selected to come to this project pro- partially because of my political opinion, I would say, but also because I had founded the Political Debate Caucus at Cape Elizabeth High School, as well as co-founded the Cape Conservatives Club. So I kind of I went into it thinking it was going to be the, pretty much the exact same thing that I'd already been doing. I didn't know that it was going to be so much of a um, so much of a philosophical journey 
more than just people talking at each other to expand our minds. And I was really relieved to find that it was a real fresh, you know, a real breath of fresh air from, you know, talking heads on TV and, you know, little five-second sound bites. This is Deb. One of the most important um, components to transformation, in my opinion, is a, is a delicate balance of comfort and discomfort. You can't stay at home in your own house and eat the food you love and drink your favorite coffee or tea or what have you and talk to just the people that you like and have a different experience. You know, we created a lot of opportunity for knowing oneself. Who are you? Why do you believe what you believe? Um, I think Jacob called it philosophical, this sense of we're not just here as talking heads to have a conversation. We're whole people with multiple stories inside of us. So we're trying to have a sense of who am I? And then also learn the skills of figuring out who are you, listening to you know what the other perspective is. And then um, doing, I think, the hard work of democracy to find places of agreement and disagreement and then um, areas of moving forward. So it's really a balance of comfort and discomfort, times when people could feel uh, like they were with um, people who thought like them, and then other times where they needed to pair up and have um, difficult conversations. Yeah, so it does sound like hard work, but also fascinating work. I'm just wondering, sort of as a practical matter, what the program looked like. Maybe you can tell us a little bit from your perspective about what it took to create an environment where the students could actually do this, um, you know, the hard work of democracy, as you called it. The Can We Project is a three-event program. So it started with a, um, it's a retreat model. So a three-day retreat followed by a two-day retreat and then an event in which uh, students presented to gubernatorial candidates in Maine their policy recommendations. The project itself is built on a framework that has to do with self-awareness, perspective-taking, and creative problem-solving. The activities are activities that are small and large group activities in which young people um, from multiple perspectives either uh, get into pairs or small groups, um, think about their relationship to democracy and how they define that. Um, they think about their belief systems and do activities that um, propose, yeah, just que questions. It's inquiry-based learning. Um, it's experiential learning. So there are activities that ask them to work in groups. Um, sometimes we did activities that were about pairing up with another person with an opposing view, both to be able to articulate, to learn, to practice the skill of articulating what you believe, listening to another person's belief, and then thirdly, being able to find common ground. Uh, we also did a lot with the creative arts. So we introduced an art project through the process that also is really important for, I think, all humans, but in particular, young people finding ways that are using different parts of the brain to, ex to express and integrate. So, for example, uh, people would have a partner and they had to um, outline each other's silhouettes and they had to ask each other curious questions. So uh, to get to know each other as human beings and what matters to you and, and different questions such as this. It's using the skills of um, narrative theory, being able to tell your story. It's teaching communication skills while also giving an opportunity to remove yourself from your regular environment. 
So it's so interesting to hear how you created an environment to teach the skills of dialogue and perspective taking more broadly. Um, and we're also fascinated by the policy aspect of the Kemi project, right? So you broke this larger group of, of 30 students into four smaller groups to discuss policy issues and actually design proposals to present to the main gubernatorial candidates. And, and they were big issues that these groups were discussing, guns, uh, drug policy, education, race. We and Jacob, we understand you two were in the same small group uh, dealing with issues around race. Can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like for you? Uh, this is we. And our group was, we just had a lot of disagreement on what policies we should take because we had a discussion of what white privilege is and what white privilege isn't. And there were just lots of disagreements within that to the point where we struggled. All the other groups had their policies, but our group was still trying to um, kind of like unravel like something we agree and disagree on. And I think that's just difficult because race has such a big history in this nation that it was just hard. Everyone comes from their core beliefs of with their family and friends and just like individually, which made it hard for us to all sit down and be like, these are some policies we can change because even the gubernatorial candidates might disagree with us. It was just a very tricky, but through like thorough like conversation and just like being like, hey, this is what we don't disagree. This is what we disagree on. This is what we agree on. I think we made it work, and we had an excellent performance to the gubernatorial candidate. I agree entirely. We were notorious for, you know, taking the difficult angles on the difficult topics and, you know, using brute force to talk about it through our entire time. Uh, One of the activities that you wanted to hear about, we used a fishbowl style to, uh, to present our small group's progress to the other groups. So you'd have... A group of chairs in the middle with all of the people from the group in the chairs, short of one empty seat, and then all the other three groups in a circle around it. And then the our small group would present to the other three groups, and then they would be able to send in one person at a time to ask questions to us. That was really kind of the, uh, the peak of difficulty at that point, because we had a whole bunch of people who had a whole bunch of, you know, specific ties from their identity to this topic and none of them really could or even should give any common ground it's like one of those things where you have to be polarized on and uh struggles went in and we came out stronger and we presented a little bit of a different presentation to the gubernatorial candidates like we told them about our struggles and how that was necessary and how it had to happen to have this conversation as like to kind of speak upon what Jacob was talking about when we did those fish bowls, I have to agree with him. That was probably one of the most intense moments while we were at Can We because the conversation was, in a sense, to me being an outsider. I sat inside the circle once, but I took that time to kind of observe a lot. Like being on the outside, it just became a conversation that was running in circles. But sitting there, I realized that if you yell at someone and you keep telling them the same thing over and over again, it's not going to change anything. And I think that was the moment when I was like, this conversation isn't going anywhere. It's not going to help me learn. It's not going to help anybody else in the room learn. So how can we do this better? How can we change this so that every single person in here leaves learning something new?
for me being one of the people of color in the room hearing the conversation it was very difficult but it was a lesson I needed to learn because conversations are going to go like that and I also had to learn not to take it personally because these people weren't saying these things out of malice at least I think they weren't it wasn't them trying to attack me and people who look like me it was them trying to grasp the concept of race or talk about race from their perspective if they weren't people of color and I shouldn't have expected them to understand what I go through because I don't understand what they go through so who am I to sit there and think oh you should be saying a b and c because you should know what it's like to be me that was uh, a huge lesson that not every conversation has a conclusion i think that was a very big lesson i learned while i can we from that one conversation i have to say there's so many things that this experience gave to me one was to watch this generation this group of young people not give up and not collapse um so while there was some real there were really difficult moments they came back to it um, and the task at hand. So when they came back the second or third time, what I remember the group saying is we're going to focus on what we can agree on. And what we can agree on is that the gubernatorial candidate in Maine, whoever that new governor is, will need to address and will need to have some sort of um, racial consciousness, right? You all said we agree as a group that they'll need to know how to talk and think about the top about topics of race. And then there was a laundry list of things that related to to race and racial equity that the group did not agree on. And I thought that was a particularly poignant moment um, and maybe an element of democracy that we've sort of let go of a bit, which is there's a lot we disagree on. And uh, maybe it's also worth a little extra look at what we can agree on, even if it's a small amount. And maybe even sometimes it's okay that we don't all agree on everything. Absolutely. And we don't yeah. need to make the goal agreeing on everything. Um, I don't know. Was that a sense that you guys had in your group ultimately? Yeah, this is Jacob. That exact sentiment was kind of the big breaking point that kind of broke the dam down. We were able to move past one kid named John who you know, pretty much hadn't been saying very much the entire time, spoke up and said, you know, it kind of clicked in his head that we don't need to be at the same place here to make this thing. A whole bunch of people were trying to, you know, all drag each other around. But then John spoke and he said, you know, exactly what you just said. And from there on, we all took that exactly. Uh, we took that as sacrosanct. And we were able to form a presentation. We were able to do everything else we needed to do. Why do you think that was so freeing for the group? I think it was impactful because it is it was just such a sentiment that you don't ever hear that you don't ever you don't ever hear that you just can disagree with people and that can be the end of it. Yeah, it's funny. It, it does seem like a simple but also a really profound idea and and really comforting to embrace it, but it doesn't always come so naturally. Um, and I wonder, Kutia or we, did either of you have a sort of light bulb moment on the question of having to actually confront and figure out you know, what to do about being in disagreement? Yes, most definitely. I gained a lot of skills of how to articulate myself, on how to stand up for myself, and also how to know when to leave a conversation, when to know that 
I'm not going to change the... Also, n- that the point of going into a dialogue or a conversation is not to change the other person's mind, but to kind of gain their perspective and listen to them so that they take the time to listen to you. And I think that is just something I'm going to take with me everywhere I go for the rest of my life. I think going in, I, I thought I was like very headstrong in my ideas. I was very open to other people teaching me new things, but I was kind of like, I know these things and I'm good. I'm here to listen, maybe teach other people stuff. But once getting there and having that that huge diversity of mind and also having students who were also very strong in their beliefs who were willing to challenge me. It was it was kind of like the first time someone sat there and was like, why? Why? And getting stumbled and being like, I don't know. Like it taught you like, wait, maybe I'm not so strong in these beliefs. Maybe I need to take a moment and think about what I'm saying before I say it. And I think that that was a big lesson too. And I'm glad I had it. <laughs> What would you students uh, have said about your sort of the level of your inherent belief in democracy going into this project? Had you guys thought about, I don't know, cracks or fissures or or weaknesses in sort of the whole democratic experience or experiment before you got to this this project? I definitely had faith in people to make the right decisions. Over time, enough of the bad ideas are filtered out naturally and passively that it would be not too terrible. Like, we have moved in a positive direction over time, I felt. Um, Me? I had never really thought about it deeply, to be honest. So I think that after Can We, I think I did think about it more deeply and kind of paid more attention to that, like, the policy aspect, because I think that a lot of the times I was engaging in conversations about what was happening but never about what could be done. And I think can we taught me with like going through the, all the dialogues we did, but then also having that component of presenting to the uh, to the gubernatorial candidates, having something that we're like, you know what, we had all these conversations, we spent all this time, now let's do something about it. I think that was an important lesson I learned about you can talk about something all you want and constantly, but if you never do anything about it, then sometimes those conversations are just leading you nowhere. Uh, I love that point about the importance of the, um, the the policy piece of the work that you guys did. And I'm curious, I guess, from the perspective, your perspective, we and, and yours too, Jacob, how did that piece play a role in your overall experience of, of the project? This, and How important was that um, to include as part of the Can We project? It's definitely, um, definitely the crux, having the central goal of working towards that, because without that, it would have fallen apart a lot quicker. We all knew that we had to do something to uh, prepare for the presentation in front of the audience and in front of the gubernatorial candidates. I think it added a very important component to the Kennedy Project because once we got together in our groups to bring policies up and like ag- agreement and disagreement up to present to the gubernatorial candidates, um, it couldn't be a debate anymore. Like um, The discussion had to be a democratic decision. Um, that we were going to present. So it took away kind of like our like ideas of debating, be like, I'm right, you're wrong, but more like, what do we all, like it forced us and challenged us to wonder like, what do we all agree on and what can we discuss and what policies can we all agree on? And it also just added like the component of being like, this means something. It's not just like a bunch of kids getting together for a conversation. And that's important within itself. But, like, it's also, like, we're going to do something. We're going to talk to some pretty important people on this stage, um, and they're going to hear us. And it just added those two important components, and I thought it meant a lot. 
I want to come back to something that Kutia mentioned a little bit earlier, which is the challenge of being asked about the why behind your beliefs. Um, I just wanted to give you a chance to weigh in on that as well, we and Jacob, um, since that seems like a really key and different part of this program. Uh, well, I go to a very um, liberal school. So when I was asked this question, it was always a fear in my mind. I'm just like, what if I just believe everything? Because it's like a popular trend at my school to believe very liberal things. And it really challenged, um, especially when I was talking to like conservatives and they were challenging like why I thought the way I thought. And it's just like I never had like someone challenge that because I go to all liberal school, anything I say that had a liberal tendencies was correct to everyone else. So to be challenged by like our facilitators and other conservatives, it was a very beneficial thing. And it really got me thinking like, are these my own beliefs or are these beliefs I adapted from my environment? I think the reason why people don't really want to hear the why, like you were saying, is because they think they already know the why. Like they very clearly know someone's intent behind something even you know, just by their own assertion. So when someone hears me say, for example, uh, that I think police brutality is an overstated problem, and they think, well, that must be because you don't care about blacks, or you think police are okay, or you this and this and this, but you break it down into it is just, you know, overstatements from the media, for example. A position that they never would have thought one could have. And that goes both ways, obviously. Even going back to some of the broadest labels, like liberal, conservative, sometimes when we hear that, we think, I know exactly your story. I know exactly who you are as a character. And I think what I'm hearing you say is that they're, they're, what you experienced in Kenwi was a lot of complexity around where people's stories came from or beliefs came from, I should say. Kind of my biggest personal growth coming out of this, I think, I don't really think I mentioned earlier, was that I went in expecting a lot of cookie-cutter opinions, like a lot of things that everyone that was left-minded could all say with no really tangents and personal experiences that could alter what they were saying. But when I went in, I was really lucky to hear how once you just break the surface level of you know, what they think they're supposed to say, then you get down to really how interesting everyone is individually and how every single person has, you know, very much different opinions on things ranging from, well, lots of things we talked about. And you just have to break down that surface area. You have to break down the um, their barriers to entry to get them to talk about it. And you'll find that they're very interesting. I think that's the thing is that we're all so complex complex and that there's a thousand stories or maybe even a million stories inside one person. And I know for me, I do this work alongside these students to almost um, let my, you know, take that deep breath, but also, yeah, try to try to have my feelings and then also be willing to see the thousand or million stories inside of that person and not just stop at my, my disconnect or my lack of agreement. But it's messy territory. It's not for the faint of heart. You sort of have to be willing to, um, I don't know, I guess in Maine, we'd say put on your big like muck boots and uh, you have to be brave. You know, it is, it's not easy emotional territory. I don't know what you guys would say, but I think it's pretty challenging. But I think you asked a question earlier about what are the benefits? Like, why should we do this? Maybe it's not even just can we, but should we? 
you know, I'm curious, like, what you guys would say and why should we? <laughs> yeah, that's a perfect question. Why? Why do this at all? That's kind of what my parents say. It's like they use the example of the risk being attached to speaking out about politics like this as evidence to show that you, you know, you're just causing upset and you're just getting people riled up and you shouldn't do it. But then if we didn't do it, well, everyone just goes and goes into their little ends and then they form little echo chambers and they never talk to each other. And now we're just left with the same problem again. So the reason that we do need to do this and talk to each other is to bring everyone back into the middle so that we can put policies forward rather than just having, you know, the political flip-flop system that we have right now where parties switch in and out of politics and power over and over and over again. I already said this before, but it's kind of like the fact that we are the next generation. We're going to be the next, like I said, the next teachers, the next advocates, and like the next people taking on the roles of senator and house of representative. And I think it's just... I don't believe our society can progress as quickly as we like it to unless we all sit down and have a discussion about policy and about like what we agree on, what we disagree on. And I think that's so important because we can't just like I was talking to a friend about this and they were just like, why even do this? Um, let's just create bills and like outvote them or something like that. I'm just and then at first I was like, that sounds like a wonderful idea. I'll vote the I'll vote the conservatives and the liberals win. And like their next step is to over in twenty twenty overrun the Senate again and then take the presidency too. But what good does that do when we have the other half of the population trying to fight back and trying to reverse all that and maybe in two thousand and twenty four? And it's kind of like we we're just going to have this ongoing battle back and forth until we can all sit down and demographically like what this nation believes in agree to progress as one rather than just agree as like to progress one half and then the other half progresses. And I think that's so important. Yeah, we'll just probably echo everything that's been said. And also, like, if we're not. I think we have to be the start. We have to be the ones who are, we're going to have these conversations because we, like we said, we're the, we're next up and we need to have these conversations in order to move forward. And I think coming back after, can we, and like kind of talking to my friends about politics, it kind of showed me a huge difference in the way I look at things compared to what the way they look at things. Because I think some of them are still stuck in the mindset of like, conservatives are bad and we need to get rid of them instead of being like, hey, we should probably sit down, talk about this really see where this is coming from and perhaps come to uh, some common ground or just really educate ourselves. And I think that's the biggest problem is that when you're so stuck in your ideas, you think I'm right, everybody else is wrong. I'm not even going to take that step to maybe learn a little more about the other side. So I'm happy that we were all brave enough and strong enough to be like, you know what, maybe some of my ideas are wrong and I need to learn better. I'm just so struck by um, in what each of you have said, a real vision for a better way of doing politics and a better system and better um, interactions than what we're seeing now or what the status quo has. Um, and, and imagining that, that you, that you do have a platform to communicate some of what you learn to um, adults who are our leaders, what, what would be um, the thing that you would tell them based on your experience? What would be your advice or your sort of a nugget of reflection that you'd want to share based on your experience? 
I think that going through the Can We project, I realized that I didn't know everything. And if I, if at that I didn't know any everything and that the adults around me didn't know everything. I think that the problem I see with a lot of like the older generation is that they're so stuck in their ideas and they think they know what's best that they stopped learning and they stopped listening. And I think that's a huge problem of once you shut yourself off, nothing can ever change. So I think that we need to keep learning, keep listening to new perspectives and really and really give others a chance. Yeah, like everything I'm about to say just kind of echoes off Kutia. And I just, I won't repeat it just because the idea is already out, but also to adults, like, don't count out young people. And I think Deb touched on this before. Like, yes, we're young, but our circle has, we're still exploring new ideas and new feelings and our identities. But that doesn't make us incapable of having meaningful conversations to help progress this, like, progress the society. And I just, I do believe the younger generation now is intelligent enough to be the next change in our nation. And I, I think that if adults and young, like young adults and we all work together, I think we can do a lot of great things for this country and even the world. Is what you're talking about the fundamental question? Can we, I mean, is that what it, what, what it gets at? Can we overcome where we are right now so that it, it doesn't look like, this in 2020 or 2024 or 2028, whatever it is, is that the question in, in part that you guys are, are trying to answer in this project? Can we do differently than we're doing right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I believe we can. <laughs> yes, we can. <laughs> we, we definitely can. Yes, we can. Um, I mean, seeing just how we've done it amongst ourselves, I think we can. If there's people out there like us, groups of students that are willing to do it, then I think it'll happen. All right, Sarah, that does bring us to the end of uh, the time we got to spend with uh, students from the Can We Project and, and Deb Bicknell. And what an impressive group it was. Um, you know, when you stop to think that a group of um, ideologically diverse teens were able to come together and not only um, some build some of the skills to engage with each other through their differences and see each other as, as people instead of caricatures, but also to devise, um, you know, really important joint policy proposals. Um, it gives a lot of hope for what the next generation can accomplish. Yeah, that gives a lot of hope, a lot of inspiration, um, and I know for, for us a lot of motivation, and we hope that you felt that as well um, as, you, as you're listening. We also hope that you'll come to join us on our next episode. Um, we're going to visit with some really courageous people who are working to help a community in Minnesota forge through some incredibly painful and incredibly challenging issues Uh, related to race and policing. So stay tuned for our next episode on that. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the American Arbitration Association's International Center for Dispute Resolution Foundation. Thanks so much also to our editor, Kate Ellis, and to the folks at the Harvard Media Production Center where we do our recording. Theme music is made available to us courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions. And we want to thank our colleague Tracy Blanchard for her indispensable help. If you'd like to hear more about anything that we spoke about on today's show, please take a look at our website, hnmcp.law.harvard.edu slash podcast. And there you'll find a transcript of today's show and many other resources that relate to what we talked about. Thanks for listening. Yeah, as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.